0: On today's show, we have one of my favorite journalists, Murtaza Hassan, writer for The Intercept and co-host of The Intercepted podcast. We discuss investigative journalism and global affairs, including India's transnational assassination program and the bleak situation in Gaza. This is your host, Omar, and welcome to the Ozone podcast. Welcome to the show, Murthaza. Thank you for joining the podcast. Thanks for having me. Um, so my first question is maybe you can start by telling a little bit about yourself and how you got into journalism.
1: Sure. So I've been working as a reporter at The Intercept for about 10 years now, since I was one of the original employees at The Intercept. And I'm still there today. And, you know, I got into journalism sort of an atypical way. I didn't study journalism per se. I didn't uh, study any even field, which are we'd say adjacent to journalism, studied economics, but I just always had an interest in politics and the, I guess i would say it's more specifically the post 9-11 world and how it impacted our lives here and places in the Middle East and South Asia and North Africa. So I just had an interest in that. So I had a blog many, many years ago and also social media just to write about these issues. And somehow the blog became popular a long time ago. Mm-hmm. And as a result of that, I used to start, I started freelancing for Al Jazeera and Guardian and a few other places. Then around the time of the Arab Spring, I just uh, hopped on a flight and went to Egypt just to give my own, get my own appraisal of it. And then people started to want me to write more about these issues. So then, you know, I started freelancing for different outlets. And then I got to know a few people who were involved in the incipient phase of the Intercept. And they asked me to join. And I've been there ever since.
0: That's pretty cool. Was there any one particular story that got you into it, or was it just kind of like all those post-9-11 events in Arab Spring, or was there, do you ever read one article or one journalist who kind of inspired you? I can't think of a
1: particular journalist at that time who I liked. You know, I would read, uh, I well, at that time, I really liked Glenn Greenwald and Jeremy Scahill, who I later became colleagues with at The Intercept. Those people I, actually, those people, at that time was my favorite, favorite journalist. I thought that they were one of the few people who were saying something outside of the kind of consensus narrative about the wars and so forth back then. So, yeah, I think they, they were actually a big influence on me, which is funny now because I know them so well. Or, Jeremy is still a colleague at The Intercept. So, but yeah, they, they really were the ones who I liked, I liked best, actually.
0: So how was it like working with these like titans of kind of investigative journalism, like from going from someone you admire to like actually like working on stories with them and just becoming colleagues with them?
1: Yeah, it was great. Like I said, I didn't study journalism before I started working. it, So I had to learn a lot of these things just by doing them. And when I started working The Intercept, I was kind of thrown into a lot of really, really sensitive reporting, like the, particularly the Snowden documents at that time, which was a big deal. So I had done some reporting in different countries just on my own and I'd written lots of articles like that. But I never reported on classified secret documents. I didn't know the security protocols I need to adhere to or how you go about reporting an archive of sensitive documents from a government and things like that. So I had to learn from these people who, you know, luckily did have a lot of experience with that. They kind of gave me the guide. So it was like an apprenticeship, really, for me at a young age. I was in probably 25, 26 at that time. You know, I learned doing it that way. And Now, since then, we've done a lot of stories like that. And I've done a lot of stories like that. And I'm still doing stories like that. And, you know, now I feel like I'm the experienced one who teaches someone how to do it and so forth. So it's been a great learning experience. And Obviously, when you get to know people, you see them, when you know them just abstractly from reading their stories or seeing them on TV, you know one side of them or you see, get to know them really well, you see them more as, like, people. So that's also interesting. Like How does, what type of people are these? How do you get into this? Like, what drives people who, are in, who you know, take these sort of uh, roles in society? That's been fascinating. It's been a good learning experience for me. and I'm still learning even today.
0: A lot of times journalism in movies is pretty glamorous. I mean, a lot of the movies are kind of old school where a bunch of reporters are in a media room or in a big office. Is that how it kind of works? Or is it more decentralized now? With you're kind of working from home with your laptop? Or is it kind of a mix? Like, what's the actual environment for a journalist like yourself?
1: Yeah, you know, it's a, it's a mix, I would say. Sometimes it does feel like spotlight or something like that. But sometimes it feels more like, yeah, you're just kind of on your own and you don't really see your colleagues very often at all. As a post-pandemic, it's become a bit more of the latter because The Intercept and a lot of other places have decentralized themselves physically as well too. And you know, I would say sometimes it feels really interesting. It feels like you're doing some sort of clandestine sort of uh, trying investigations, digging around. It's great, and then other times it feels more like a you know a typical job. And ebb and flow is nice, but I would say that you know every job is not only the glamorous moments. There's a lot of I don't want to use the word drudgery, but there's a lot of you know work also involved in it too. Uh, I'd say it's a mixture, but uh, it also depends the kind of institution you work in. The Intercept is a pretty young institution, so it doesn't really have the same sort of uh, embedded culture uh, in certain ways that the New York Times or the Washington Post or place like that may have.
0: I know, like you said, you dealt with sensitive material you don't have to give away your secret sauce but like how does one make contacts i know you do a lot of sensitive reporting do you have to like get to know people or do they find you because they know you work for the intercept like how does that whole thing work because i'm sure everything you work with is pretty top secret yeah
1: yeah so you know like you can think of your coverage on certain subjects as in some cases like leaving out a signal to people that hey look i'm interested in the subject that i write an article about some particular topic uh it lets the world know that i'm interested in the subject and then maybe if someone who's reading trusts you they could reach out to you in some uh, secure way to give you information or tell you give you a tip and that tip could be anything It could just be information it could be sometimes a document it could be just pointing you in a particular direction and winning the trust of your readers is a way of building more incentive for more stories. So, you know, we have these stories here and there on South Asia this year, Pakistan, India, and things like that. And those stories have led to, you can see in our reporting more stories from more sources giving us more information because they trust our previous reporting so i say it's like that like the more you write about something the more likely you are to get someone reach out to you and obviously there's other ways like depending on your social circles your background you may you know know people who work in uh, institutions which have information which might be interesting for people to know so it's a number of things but there's not really that's a good it's a good question because i also wondered that when i started doing journalism and there's really no really one answer to it. It's just a n- number of different channels, about which you maybe get to know people who have information that they want the public to know.
0: So that makes sense. So I, I know you mentioned the New York Times, and I feel like the Intercept for lot. some people who don't read that, it's like one of the few websites or news institutions that I know that has real investigative journalism. Of course, places like New York Times and stuff do deep dives as well. But overall, there's a big distrust of mainstream media. For example, I can just give you right now, and I'm kind of following some of the things in Palestine, I don't really see a lot of the information on mainstream. There's very fixed narratives, and I kind of dig through social media. So do you think that there's a disconnect between uh, what the mainstream media reports and what you think is real journalism?
1: Uh, I think there's been an improvement in the last like decade or so. A lot of it's because of social media and alternative media. It sort of highlighted so much information which falls outside of what was previously being reported, and pressure from that has forced, quote-unquote, mainstream media to take a bit more of a broader lens on things. So I think there's definitely been market improvement. Uh, I'd not to say it's perfect by any means, but in the coverage of The New York Times, or The Washington Post, places like this. And when I say improvement, I just mean that there's more of a perspective of more different groups of people represented. Uh, if you look at Twitter or X, what do you call it these days, or you know oh, even uh, alternative media outlets like The Intercept, you, you use that term for The Intercept, I guess, uh, you'll see a lot of things which are true and which are you know documented and have evidence for them, but they don't necessarily appear in the pages of The New York Times. And then when you see enough of that, you start to wonder why aren't they appearing? Mm-hmm. And you know people in The New York Times, they a lot of conscientious and good journalists and editors there you know, they also feel incumbent on doing their duty to make sure they represent the fuller picture of the world. So I think that because of the internet and internet media generally, it's created a situation where there's been improvement, at least on some subjects, in the coverage of legacy media.
0: Now a quick break. Okay, so I'm going to ask you what your favorite story you reported. But before that, I'll tell you my favorite story that you reported. is eight years ago, you did a report about the Fort Dix Five. And for people that don't know, it was kind of an entrapment story about some ethnic Albanian immigrants to the US who went shooting like just like gun range. They gave the tape to Circuit City to try to make copies. It just spiraled into them getting entrapped in a terrorist plot, which they had very loose or almost no connection with. So that one really stood out to me. Would you have any comments on that story? And what was the, your favorite story that you reported?
1: Yeah, that, that was certainly a very memorable story. Uh, those guys are still in jail, too. It's, uh, I would encourage people to go read up about them. But uh, a group of brothers who uh, were entrapped, basically, and accused of the involvement of a alleged terrorist plot. But there really was no plot. And there was no you know even knowledge of the alleged plot on the part of the people who were sent to jail for life for that. And I can't really explain the whole case just in a few sentences. But if you look at the yeah. Intercept website, you search... Sort of Four, six, five, you'll see a lot of information. I do think people should know about that case because, there's, like I said, they're still in jail. And if uh, we also did a short documentary, which was nominated to Sundance that year as well, too, based on that. And you can watch that documentary on the Intercept's website. So there's that. I think more recently, we had a story this year about Pakistan and the removal from power of former Prime Minister Imran Khan. We received a classified document from the Pakistani perspective showing that significant U.S. State Department pressure was put on the Pakistani government to actually remove him from power, which is something he'd been claiming for quite some time. And we, we obtained a document which sort of validated that. And so I think that story had a very, very big impact in Pakistan and South Asia in general. And we're still seeing after effects of that story in terms of subsequent reporting we've done, which uh, has shed a broader light on things going on in that country.
0: Yeah, it's perfect. I was going to actually ask you about that. So I think that story was written by you and Ryan Graham, and I believe you guys broke that story at The Intercept. Is that correct? That's correct, yeah. So, I mean, that story became worldwide in terms of like getting attention, and in Pakistan, it became huge. And I remember after that document that basically, I think the U.S. envoy kind of implied that from Biden's envoy that uh, removing Imran Khan from power would be kind of beneficial. Is that is that was that the basis or what exactly was behind the cipher, as they say?
1: Right, right. Yeah. So the cipher was a document created by that time, Pakistan's ambassador to uh, the US. And the terminology cipher is just kind of like a memo internal classified memo, which had been sent to a number of agencies inside Pakistan, very, very confidential. Mm-hmm. And it basically described the contents of a conversation between him and a senior State Department official, Donald Liu, in which Don Liu basically told, he's basically threatened uh, that if Pakistan does not remove Imran Khan in a subsequent uh, vote of no confidence, there were going to be very, very grave consequences in terms of US Pakistan relations. Pretty dire threats in the document and a lot of pressure. And it was to do, it seems like his dissatisfaction was to do with Imran Khan's statements and policies regarding the Russian invasion of Ukraine, uh, in which Pakistan had taken what he described as a quote unquote aggressively neutral stance. Mm -hmm. So basically, you know, that document, Imran Khan had talked about it for quite some time and alluded to it and said that there was this document internally showing that uh, he had been removed following US pressure on the government. And no one really believed him at that time, including you know, I was myself even skeptical of this narrative. But it turns out once we got the document, you know, it was true. It was true what he said. There was a document which showed exactly what he's talking about. And, you know, even very specific things that he quoted or said in his speeches, they were in that document. And they were, you know, written recorded by a senior Pakistani diplomat. So, you know, the document certainly galvanized the supporters quite a bit in Pakistan and created a huge stir in the country. The current, at that time, Prime Minister, uh, Nawaz Sharif, or sorry, Shabazz Sharif, responded to it. Uh, he said that, you know, he noted that it had been leaked and sort of condemned the leak as a big crime. You know, it had a big impact. But, uh, you know, he's still in jail in Rantan, unfortunately, uh, for his supporters. But uh, it certainly did show that he was not lying and he wasn't even exaggerating, really, about the level of pressure that his government was under from the United States.
0: I remember, uh, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, uh, when you guys published that article, there were a lot of denials from Pakistani officials and maybe even threats to you and Ryan. Is that true? Or was it just like denials?
1: Uh, I don't recall any threats per se. They certainly weren't happy about it. You know, it's interesting. There were a lot of uh, denial. They Actually, there wasn't even really denials per se. They just kind of tried to ignore it for the most part. Uh, They're mostly accusations inside Pakistan against Imran Khan that he leaked it, which is not true, by the way. He's not our source for the story, as we indicated in there, and nor is anyone connected to him our source for the story. But, you know, it really just kind of created more anger on the part of his supporters and sort of clarity in Pakistani politics. But also, you know, it's being used now to persecute him uh, under the pretext that he had some involvement, they don't actually they haven't charged him with leaking the document to us. I think because they know actually there's no proof of that because it's not true. But mm-hmm. you know, implicitly, he's being blamed in some way for the publication of the story, which is very embarrassing to the Pakistani military and establishment. So that's kind of been the consequence so far. But also, the story's not over. The story, in the sense that this case is not over, and you know, there'll be more to see about what the consequences are for Mr. Khan now. But I do think they'd probably be happy this document's out because it does show that the falsity of a lot of what's going on there now, right, at the moment.
0: Yeah, I think I remember that Imran Khan visited Putin on the day of the Ukraine invasion. So that kind of accelerated things was a bad look for him in ter- from the viewpoint of the USA. Now, I have a question. So you deal with a lot of sensitive information and obviously some of it is coming from, you know, leaked sources from different uh, foreign governments or it could be from a security agency in the US like the CIA or the FBI. Are there any safety concerns you ever feel like for yourself or for the other reporters when you have that information? Or how about for the sources themselves? Is, is that ever like a concern or you kind of roll with it?
1: Yeah, yeah, that's obviously some degree of concern. You know, I'd say for the most part, if you're based in the Western country, most of your concerns are probably about information security and legal threats. That's the primary concern uh, for our colleagues though, who are based in other countries with of law is less robust. You know, physical safety is also a significant concern. And, you know, obviously there's an issue of uh, transnational repression, which is coming up more. There's a hearing about that on December 6th in the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. And transnational repression refers to uh, foreign governments whom you know, may be someone living here in the U.S. may engage in activism against or reporting, which is in some sense adverse to uh, those people can be threatened by physical harm in other ways. So I think that that's also something to be concerned about. And certainly when travel, you have to be, think about that. Think about the countries you've written about in the past. And, uh, what lists you may be on and things like that. That is certainly something to keep in mind. So, you know, I don't try to center myself in it to say that there's so much danger about X, Y, and Z. There is some, but I think it's not really, it pales in the comparison to people, let's say in Gaza at the moment, who are being targeted by the Israeli military. But I think that there are, something you have to think about and plan for, and you know, be cognizant of uh, legal and, secure and information security risks. So that's also something that at all times is quite a severe thing to think about.
0: I'm sure that you get a lot of stories that are probably interesting, but you can't report them because either they're not verified or maybe it doesn't crack the editor's list. Is that true? Do you get things that are not interesting, but you just can't kind of confirm them?
1: Sure, all the time, all the time. If there's something which can't be confirmed or, you know, you can't verify them, uh, tips and things like that, most stories, actually, I would say, are you can't report them. Um, you know, it's unfortunate, but uh, kind of the case. Very, very common. that a lot of things people tell you, there's no way to verify or corroborate them, so you just have to let go. Uh, it's very, it's a minority of things which ever make it to print in terms of events, and a lot of true things are probably never reported because no one can prove them, unfortunately.
0: Last week, a friend of mine texted me an article that you wrote and it was pretty interesting. It was about an Indian agent. It was a murder-for-hire plot. Can you tell me a little bit about that and the importance of that story?
1: Right. So last week, there was an indictment unsealed in New York against
0: a gentleman, Nikhil Gupta, who was
1: accused of uh, acting, trying to orchestrate a murder-for-hire plot on behalf of the Indian government uh, in New York against another guy named Gopatwant Singh Panun, who is a inv- person involved in Sikh political activism. Sikh is a Minority group in India uh, in the 80s and 90s, they tried to have a separatist insurgency to create their own country that's called Khalistan. It was crushed by the Indian military. But there's still some people in the diaspora who advocate for this cause uh, quite publicly, and Mr. Panun is one of them. And this has been a source of friction with the Indian government. And allegedly, according to the indictment, they tried to hire someone to kill him. Uh, Nikhil Gupta, on behalf of the Indian government, tried to hire another person to kill Mr. Panun and you know accidentally he hired an undercover dea agent and that was a person whom we thought was an organized crime figure whom he hired and that person was surveilling all the conversations surveilling the contacts in india and so forth so it was very embarrassing situation actually they tried to kill somebody the indian government tried to do assassination in america they got caught in a very very you know brazen manner now there's a legal case but you know on top of that, there was actually a killing that happened in June of another gentleman named Hadeep Singh Nijjar in Vancouver, in Canada. And Correct. The, yep. Canadian, the Canadian government's already accused India publicly of being involved in that. So now it's pretty clear that there was a transnational assassination program being run by the Indian government. And you know, The Intercept, we're going to cover more about this very soon. Actually, we're going to have more stories about the subject to shed more light about, which I can't discuss at the moment, but sure. I'll say in the next t- 24 hours, maybe you can see another story about this
0: definitely look out for that. Now, this seems like a kind of a big deal, like a foreign country trying to assassinate an American citizen or resident. Could there be any fallout with U.S.-Indian relations? I know they're trying to like ramp those up these days with Modi making some trips to the U.S. Are there any implications that you think that could potentially change anything?
1: Well, you know, I think that it's interesting because the basis of U.S.-Indian relations is two things. One is a shared interest in countering China, which is seen as the big threat to the U.S., big rival to the US in the 21st century. So India is also a big country in terms of territory and, and population. They also have a tough relationship with China. So they seem like a natural partner and that, that's not gone away. And secondly, India has a relatively large and growing middle class, which obviously US wants to be access to that market. So that's also not necessarily going away because of this. Um, so I don't see any... Significant harm to US India relationships per se. But I do think that it's notable because, you know, obviously, you know, India has many democratic characteristics in its political system, but it's also a very different system. It's a very different country from the US. And I think that values are different. I think that the US has shared interests with India, but the sense that the values are shared are quite limited, actually. Mm -hmm. So you know, I think that that difference will is going to manifest more over time. And I think that's very important that as the U.S. builds ties with India in areas of shared interest, which sure has reason to do so, uh, they should be cognizant of the fact that, you know, this country in some ways is much closer to China or closer to Russia or closer to Iran in the way it operates than it's closer to the United States. And, you know, I think that it's pretty wild to see that a foreign government tried to kill an American citizen in New York after just killing a Canadian citizen in Vancouver. You know, even China, as far as I'm aware, has never carried out an assassination on U.S. soil. Uh, to see a friendly country ostensibly do that, it's quite a jarring realization. So I think that that's not going to go away either. I think that's not necessarily going to change. I think India maybe is chastened right now after getting caught doing this. But once they gain more strength and uh, gain more influence as time goes on, certainly they will try to bully the United States as they're bullying Canada right now, if you look at the news. So that's something to keep in mind. India, I think they have a shared interest right now. but. It's not a country that I foresee ever becoming an ally, per se, of the United States, and nor do many people in India even seem to want that. So that having a sense of not cynicism, but, uh, you know, pragmatism and, I could say, calculation in dealing with India for the part of U.S. policymakers, I think should be very important.
0: So interesting. I first saw your report and then I saw something from the Justice Department, kind of like a document about this story. I mean, did you break that story as well or did you kind of get that at real time?
1: No, I just saw the uh, the court documents probably around the same time some other people saw them. So we wrote this, one of the early stories about it, but it wasn't the first story. It was sort of something should made public that morning and then we published a story about it a few hours later but it was something which just had been broken to you know the post i think the day before
0: so yeah now a quick break Switching gears, I mean, everyone is kind of paying attention to what's going on in Gaza and with Israel right now. And I know on The Intercepted, you and Jeremy Scahill have had a lot of uh, podcasts with guests and you've covered this topic quite a bit. You know, right now it looks like there's like a total massacre, a genocide, just so to say. What do you think is the end game here? Short term, not long term, but like any, I know it's almost impossible to predict, but anything that you think might end the hostilities or what the short term goal of Israel might be right now?
1: You know, I'm not sure, actually, if they had a goal, short-term goal or really a plan. It seems like they were surprised by the whole event on October 7th, the attack by Hamas uh, that took place on that day. And then they launched into this war and retaliation. But it doesn't seem like they have this particular idea of how they want to end. It just seems to be mostly about vengeance. You know, the day two after the war, I don't think anyone has really thought about that or there's no clear plan about that at the moment. It's just going on and on. So, you know, obviously it's very difficult to watch and it's unclear how long it'll go on for because it's set a very extreme goal of trying to destroy Hamas entirely or at least destroy its military capacity indefinitely mm-hmm. and its leadership. That could take, you know, years. It could take a very, very long time. They're nowhere close to doing that right now, even after everything has happened so far. So I think that it'll be difficult politically to do that. And I think the role of the U.S. is very, very vital because the U.S. obviously is providing the weaponry for this assault on Gaza. And this war is also opening up some political divisions inside the United States. Popular in most of the political elite, but not universally so. And it's divisive among many people in the population, particularly in the democratic, coalition so you know some people in the administration said that israel has till maybe end of january to continue its assault that's itself is a very very long time but you know i don't know it's just going to be every day goes on and the more destruction and death you see the more the political cost of it goes up and i'm not sure if the israeli government cares but the problem for the u.s perspective it should be a problem is that most of the world blame the u.s for what's happening Because it's the patron of Israel. So I think from President Biden and Secretary Blinken's perspective, they should think about, you know, how heavy a cost they are willing to pay on behalf of Israel to continue to pursue this conflict, which, you know, doesn't really have a clear
0: plan for it. Yeah, very heartbreaking images. And, you know, it's very hard to just watch and kind of just take it in. And, you know, just want to hope that hostilities end soon. So I think one of your guests, Rashid Khalidi, and I didn't hear this from him, but there were reports and other people reported as well that um, there's a plan by Israel to kind of expel the Gazans to Egypt, to Jordan, other Arab countries. I mean, it seems very difficult how you would displace two plus million people. I mean, do you think that's something that's realistic? Or that's just kind of hearsay or talk?
1: Yeah, it's interesting. I think that it'll be difficult for them to do that, um, mainly because the Egyptian government does not want that to happen. They don't want, if they were to move people into Sinai, it probably wouldn't be allowed to come back. It's a very, very likely outcome There'll just be ethnic cleansing permanently of people from Gaza, and the Egyptian government does not want to see that. So, I don't know. I think they would like that to happen, and they're certainly pressuring for that to happen, but it doesn't seem particularly, particularly realistic at the moment. So, honestly, I have to say, I don't really know what's going to happen. I don't know what's realistic or what's likely to happen at all. I think no one really knows at the moment, because, like I said, there seems to be no plan for it. There was no one thing we learned on October 7th, is that the Israeli government never made contingency plan for what it would have to do if it didn't invade Gaza to try to replace Hamas. They'd never drawn up a strategy for how they would accomplish that or what it would look like or anything like that. So they're really flying blind at the moment, and the U.S. is flying with them blindly. So I I think that that itself is a very strong reason to pause and to have a ceasefire and switch back to a political process between the
0: respective parties. I just saw some reporting just now, I don't know if you saw it or not, that there's some hostilities now between Israel and southern Lebanon from Hezbollah, maybe. And also the Houthis have you know, taken some ships. Do you see that there's a possibility for this to expand into a more regional war? What's your prediction on that?
1: It's very possible. It's very possible. But people have been saying it's possible since the, since the beginning. And I don't think that anybody wants that, per se. It can mm-hmm. still happen despite that. But... Uh it's not something I would say is guaranteed to happen. I think that the odds are it probably won't happen at least at the moment, but you know, it could change, especially if something happens, which, uh, you know, particularly deadly erroneous strike takes place, something like that. Uh, everything could change quite quickly.
0: Okay. And the last question on this topic, um, Josh Paul, a State Department official, I think he resigned early in the hostilities, and he was on CNN recently, mentioned that there's hundreds of people within the State Department that are also kind of dissenting from the Biden-Blinken plan of supporting Israel to this extent. Have you heard anything like that? Or is that just kind of like you just heard that from him? Do you think that there is some dissent within the department?
1: Yeah, the State Department has always kind of been known to be you know he's been they've been known to be a bit more sympathetic to the Palestinians and the Arab cause generally. It's kind of like a a stereotype that existed for some time, and obviously not universally. but you know, I'm not surprised. I think that you know his the statements he made i wouldn't surprise me at all if uh, many people like him in the State Department who felt similar, and he says hundreds of people feel the same. I think that's probably true. It's probably true and uh, how much that manifests in change of policy in the short term, I think there's reason to be skeptical, but in the long term, I think it reflects a significant problem that Israel has in the sense that uh, they are going to have to deal with an American public, which has not had given the lockstep support and sympathy that they enjoyed in previous generations. I think that once the uh, baby boomers and uh, generation X give way to later generations, if you look at the polling, significantly less support for Israel there. And I think that's something we're going to see manifesting more and more, unfortunately not, anything on uh, frame which will help people in Gaza today. But, you know, 20 years from now, 30 years from now, uh, you'll see a significant change. We continue on the trajectory we're on right now
0: one thing I wanted to add, you mentioned about the four ticks five For anyone who wants to read that article. It's on the intercept. It was by Amurthiza and Razan Galani, and it was from 2015. So that's a great article just to kind of put a button on that. And I'll check out that documentary. I wasn't aware of that. Now switching to a lighter topic. I know you have a lot of interest in different languages. What languages do you speak or know?
1: Yeah, I can, uh, obviously English, which I'm speaking right now. And then, uh, grew up, as uh, this kid speaking Urdu and then, uh, Now I can speak some Persian and Turkish as well, too, just as a hobby, just something that I do like this. So pick up languages, a hobby, and they're useful for work as well, too, and traveling and things like that. So I'd say like, you know, to varying degrees of proficiency, conversational, able to read and write and four.
0: Oh, that's pretty cool. So do you have a favorite language out of the non-English languages?
1: Yeah, I actually like Urdu. I think Urdu is a, a very nice language. But, uh, you know, they
0: all have something charming about all of them. They're all all
1: nice in some way. But uh, I'd say Urdu is probably one of the nicest languages, uh, just because it's kind of a distillation of many different languages itself, like Arabic and Persian and Turkish and Hindi, uh, Sanskrit. All these influences are evident there, which is very nice.
0: Yeah, I've seen you post on Twitter slash X uh, in Farsi before. You know, that's kind of interesting that you've done some of those posts in, in a different language.
1: Yeah, it's like practice. It's a good you're using social media for language, uh, practice is great. Like people you'll write in there, people can correct you, you can have a conversation. It's, it's interesting. So it's a very, very useful tool. Uh certainly many good things about social media when you use it effectively, particularly for languages.
0: Well, I'll make a confession. I think once you post it in Farsi and I use Google Translate to respond and then we had a small conversation, so I kind of cheated there, but um. Ah. But- <laughs> just did that a while uh, maybe a couple of years ago just for fun so I know one last thing I wanted to ask you uh I know you read a lot a lot of books I'll admit that you know I read more articles I consume information by podcasts and short videos but I mean it seems like you still read a lot of books that you post about
1: yeah yeah I love to read just for me it's something useful and also enjoyable but uh Yeah, I don't really have a television or anything like that. So, you know, it's my form of entertainment. And, you know, I can say it's somehow constructive as well, too. So I always try to post on social media what I'm reading or on Twitter or X and then also on Goodreads. And, yeah, just something that I do not for any particular purpose, just to maybe share what I'm reading, what's interesting. And then sometimes you get good feedback and sometimes people actually go and buy the book that you're reading yourself. So it helps. It helps.
0: Do you have a particular book you're reading now or you have a favorite that you want to recommend to the audience?
1: Uh, I'm reading A History of the Sikhs uh, the Sikhs by Kushwant Singh. It's just a history of the Sikh people and religion in India by an Indian author, a contemporary, relatively contemporary author. So that's what I'm reading right now. And it's pretty, good. it's pretty good. It's relevant to what I'm working on these days.
0: Okay, so Murthazaf, um, if people want to find you online, where can they find you and see your work? Uh, you can find
1: me, you know, on X at mazm hussain, Mazam hussain, or you can find me in the Intercept, where I publish articles regularly. Uh, also on Substack as well too. The same M at dot dot com.
0: Okay, well, it was a pleasure to talk to you, and I appreciate it, and thanks for being the first guest on the Ozone Podcast.
1: My pleasure. Uh, I was honored too. Thanks thanks, Omar.
0: That's it for today's show. And thank you to Murtaza Hossein for being the first guest on the Ozone podcast. Please remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a review so it helps others find a show.